Let's open up in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, God, You are a great and mighty God. In this season, this season of year, we celebrate the greatest gift that You've ever given. The gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we know that Your Son brings life. We know that He brings life and light to all who come to Him by faith. And Father, this season, we hone our hearts upon the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, Your Son. I pray, Father, that as we consider these next series of messages that are intended to Help us to zero in on the purpose of Christmas, Father, the the reason for this season. I pray, Father, that You would have Your hand on all of us, that You would show us clearly, again for the first time, the beauty of Your Son's birth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I want to do a little activity here. A little activity. I'm going to say uh, a few words, and I want you to say what comes to mind. Okay, and, and you don't have time to think. Alright, you just have to say what comes to mind. Are you guys ready? Okay, ready? Everybody all at once, and I want you to speak loudly, okay, so that everybody can hear you, even through the mic here. Alright, ready for the words? Golden arches. All right, good. We're getting, we're, we're catching on. Okay, let's see, let's see here. Uh, land of the free, home of the brave. Okay, got America's, got some United States. That's okay. That's good. Uh, a corn cob pipe and a button nose. Frosty the snowman. Good, good. We're catching on. Okay, uh, world's greatest baseball team, Oakland A's. Right. Good job. Nicely done. Oh, oh! you guys didn't all agree on that one. Sorry. Hey, w- what are we doing here? We're, we're, we're making statements. We're speaking qualities or descriptions that epitomize someone or something. When I say the golden arches, everyone in the room thinks McDonald's. When I say a corncob pipe and a button nose, everyone in the room thinks Frosty the Snowman. Those qualities, those descriptions epitomize. They embody the company of McDonald's and the person of Frosty the Snowman. We can't think of anything else but that. This morning, for a portion of our time in God's Word, I want to ask us, what epitomizes Jesus Christ? What epitomizes Jesus Christ? Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to be in three separate texts today primarily. John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 5 says this in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. 
And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made. Nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. Much can be said about the prologue of John. But for our purposes today, I want to focus on verses 4 and 5 alone. In verse 4, the first clause that you see there, in Him was life. In the Word was life. In Christ was life. That is a very significant statement. A statement that John wants all of us, all of our eyes, to be drawn to. The Apostle John uses the word life, zoe in Greek, some 37 times in his Gospel. 37 times. 17 of those instances, he attaches a prefix or a suffix to it, ionos, which is eternal. He's speaking of eternal life 17 of those 37 times directly. And interestingly enough, when we carefully consider the other 20 instances of the word life in the Gospel of John, we find that that word in context always means eternal life. What does all this mean? Whenever we see the word life in the Gospel of John, usually on the lips of Jesus, we can be sure that it always means eternal life. When John says in verse 4 that in Him was life, what John means is in Jesus was eternal life. Jesus is the keeper. He's the guardian. He's the guarantor of eternal life. Eternal life is only available to mankind insofar as they come to Jesus for it. We see the word life. A word that epitomizes, that embodies the person of Jesus Christ. But then we come to a second word. We come to another word in Verses 4 and 5. Let's read them again. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. John continues in verse 4 to discuss another concept. In addition to light, life, that epitomizes Jesus Christ. And it is the word light. And the life was the light of men. Here again in this clause we find the word life, which in John's Gospel always means eternal life. But then we see that that life was the light of men. How do we understand that concept of light? 
In John's Gospel, the, the concept of light is understood in two fashions. First, light refers, and in your outline you can follow along, light refers to the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. The revelation, the revealing, the manifestation, the display of. And secondly, light refers to Jesus Himself. It can refer to Christ's revelation or to Christ Himself. In John 1.4, John writes, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. We might understand this to mean this. In Jesus is eternal life. And the eternal life embodied in Christ is the message, the revelation of God to humanity. Do you wish to know the greatest truth of God? Do you wish to know His greatest message, His greatest revelation to mankind? It is this. Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. Verse 5. And the light, the light of God's revelation in Jesus Christ, that light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overtake it. Here we come to a third word in John that is of significance. How does John use the word darkness in his Gospel? Again, he uses it in two fashions. Let's look at one text in John. John 8.12 Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And secondly, John 12.35 Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Darkness in John is understood to mean one of two things, or sometimes a combination of the two. It's understood to mean first the opposite or the antithesis of Jesus or, or of God's revelation. <coughs> Excuse me. The opposite. The antithesis of. Jesus Christ, or the opposite or antithesis of God's revelation through Christ. <coughs> and secondly, darkness is understood to mean an evil force that can overtake a person. You see that clearly in John 12.35. An evil force it can overtake a person. The adversary in Scripture, Satan, is the personification of darkness. He and his agents exert 
great influence on the world. Their mission is to darken the light of God's revelation through Jesus Christ. Their mission is to darken the light of God's revelation through Jesus Christ. And so we see in John 12.35, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Clearly, darkness in this verse is the evil forces of the adversary. They seek to darken God's revelation to humanity. And when they are successful, the end product is the overtaking of the human person. The word overtake there in Greek is katalambano. It means to overwhelm, to master, or to subdue. I'm spending so much time on this latter verse, John 12.35, because like John 1.5 before it, these, are, these two passages have a lot in common. They both use the words zoe, life, and katalambano, overtake. Excuse me, I just misspoke. They both use the words stoichia, darkness, and katalambano, overtake. And they use it in the same sentence. You can see that also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4. In John 12.35, we read, Walk while you have the light, lest stoichia, darkness, overtake you. And back in chapter 1, verse 5, we see, And the light shines in the darkness, stoichia, and the darkness did not overtake it. In our New King James, I've given a footnote at the bottom of your, of your outline there. In the New King James, the word there in chapter 5 for katalambano is not overtake, it's comprehend. And so I've put overtake in, in, in uh, italics there. But as I've said in the footnote, this ignores John 12.35. And it ignores 1 Thessalonians 5.4. In both cases... John 12.35 and 1 Thessalonians 5.4, the only plausible translation of katalambano is overtake, master, overwhelm, subdue. And the close affinity of John 1.5 with John 12.35 virtually requires the same translation. The translation we appropriately find in the uh, ESV Bible, the NAS, the New American Standard Bible, and the, and the NET versions. The word there is overtake. It's not apprehend or comprehend. It's overtake. How might we summarize verse 5 of, 1, of John 1? It is this. The greatest message of God, that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ, illuminates the world darkened by sin and death. And the powers of darkness are incapable of overtaking the messenger or his message. 
That, in a paraphrase, is John 1, verse 4 and verse 5. That the greatest message of God, that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ, that that message illuminates the world, it shines in the world, a world darkened by sin and death, and the powers of darkness, the adversary and his agents, are not capable of overtaking neither the messenger or his message. Their mission, the mission of the adversary, is to darken, overwhelm, overtake the messenger and his message of eternal life. And John 1.5 says, they have not and they will not. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. This Christmas season, I'd like to invite us to a series of messages. A series of messages that demonstrate the monumental failure of the adversary. A series of messages that demonstrate the attempt to overtake the messenger and his message. And yet, we will see time and time again God in Christ thwarting His purposes. The title of this Christmas series is The Inevitability of Christ's Advent. The Inevitability of Christ's Advent. In each of these messages, we're going to see a great attempt, a great attempt by the adversary to overtake the messenger and his message. And in each of these series messages, we will see God overcoming. The title of today's message is Part 1, The Foiled Plot to Kill the Christ. The Foiled Plot to Kill the Christ. Part 2, next week, we will see the enemy bringing a vain attempt to bring shame and charges of illegitimacy to Jesus' birth. And the title of that message is The Mercy That Trumped Apparent Illegitimacy. And the Sunday before Christmas, after having witnessed the adversary's failure to thwart the first advent of Christ, we will consider his final attempt to darken the purposes of God at Jesus' second advent. And the title of that message is The Certain Sequel. But today, the foiled plot to kill the Christ. In all of this, we will see that Jesus' coming to earth was unstoppable. It was not capable of being overtaken. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. I want to be asked the question uh, for this morning's purposes. How has the enemy, historically, how has the adversary sought to prevent Jesus Christ's advent? How has he done this? When we open up our Scriptures, when we open up our Bibles, and we consider uh, the, 
the purposes, the, the, the consideration of Satan toward Jesus Christ, how has he attempted to thwart, to stop, to prevent Advent? And you see up here two, two reasons that we can point to. The first, he's tried to, to stop it by means of corruption. And that is to say, spoiling the purity of the Messiah. I should say I'm indebted to Robert Thomas uh, for his great work on this particular question. And some of my answers are coming from, from a lot of his work here. I appreciate what he had given us there. First, the, the way in which the enemy has attempted to stop the advent of Christ is by corruption. What do I mean by that? What do we mean by corruption? Spoiling the purity of Jesus Christ. Spoiling the holiness of His line. Consider the many adulterous and foreign relations that took place in the history of Israel's lineage. We start off in Genesis chapter 6 where the, the sons of God and the daughters of men came together in unholy union. The attempt of the adversary to break, to spoil the line of Messiah. We see in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 and Genesis 26, we see Sarah in the first two of those chapters. We see Rebecca in the latter, Genesis 26. And in each of those stories, there's an attempt by Pharaoh and Abimelech to have improper relations with these great matriarchs of Israel. The adversary was trying to spoil the line of the Messiah. He brought in foreign blood. He thought, perhaps I'll bring in Naomi of Ruth. And perhaps that will spoil the lineage. Yet Boaz redeemed Naomi in the story of Ruth. He said, perhaps I will, perhaps I will cause them to neglect their birth. Neglect their birthright. Perhaps if the firstborn spoils his birthright, perhaps then the Messiah won't come. And hence the story of Jacob and Esau. You see, the enemy time and time again was seeking to corrupt the purity and the holiness of the Messiah's lineage. He did that one final time at the, at the very birth of Christ. Mary. Conceived of the Holy Ghost. I wonder what her community really thought. What shame might that have brought her? Something we will consider next week. But for our purposes, number two is of utmost importance. Another way in which the enemy sought to prevent Jesus Christ's advent was by means of murder. By means of murder. The enemy thought, if only I can take away, physically remove the line to Messiah, then and only then will I be crowned king. And so we see at the very onset of creation, the murder of Abel by Cain. The enemy thought, surely, if I can kill the righteous son, 
Messiah will not come. But God raised up Seth, another son of Adam. We see the murder in Herod's decree of death upon the firstborn of Israel while in Egypt. But we see the Lord preserving Moses, that great prophet who led them out of Egypt. We see the murder, the murderous attempts on King David's life by Saul. We see the murderous attempts of Queen Athaliah upon the royal heirs of Israel in 2 Chronicles 22. We see the exile and murder of the northern tribe of Israel from Assyria in the north. We see the exile and murder of the southern tribe of Israel from Babylon to the east. We see the murder and attempted genocide of the Jews by Haman in the story of Esther. The enemy thought, if only I can physically remove their line, Messiah will not come. Let it be very clear. Murder has always been one of the adversary's primary methods in the attempts to overtake the light. And the Apostle John, the same one whose prologue we read in John 1, also wrote of a vision. A vision he puts forth in Revelation chapter 12. You can turn there or you can read it along behind me. Notice this vision of the Apostle John. 12.1 Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Time won't permit us to dissect this in its entirety. But a few items of great importance for our purposes. First, the woman of John's vision is Israel. The mention of the garland of twelve stars on her head fittingly correspond to the twelve tribes of Israel. Furthermore, if you turn to Genesis 37... Verse 9, you will see a vision by Joseph, a vision that has great correspondence with the vision of John in Revelation 12. The woman is Israel. Second, the dragon is Satan. Later on in verse 9 of chapter 12, the dragon is identified as the devil himself. And third, the child that the dragon awaits to devour. The child that the dragon awaits to overtake 
to subdue, to devour, is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. As has been said, murder has always been one of the adversary's primary methods in his attempt to overtake the light. The woman, Israel, gave birth to a son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the dragon unleashed the darkness to devour the child at birth. At Christ's advent, the dragon did what he had been doing for three millennia prior. Eliminate the physical lineage. And John's vision in Revelation 12 was for him a heavenly vision of a past event that John knew all too well. At the time of Jesus' birth, the enemy used one particular agent of darkness to prevent, in an attempt, to prevent the advent of Jesus Christ. Who was this agent? Herod the Great. What was his diabolical mission? Kill the Christ child. I want you to take a look at a video clip which fittingly shows us the horror of that night. The star, the one that you have followed. Tell me, what does it mean? The prophecy speaks of a child. Heralded by the star we have followed these many months. What do you mean, a child? Are you not here seeking a man? A man ready to proclaim himself Messiah? No. A child. A Messiah for the lowest of men to the highest of kings. We too have been waiting for God's King. For years. When you find him, please return to us so that we may come worship him as well. if your soldiers were to go to Bethlehem and find every young boy there under two years what would happen to their new messiah then
Matthew 2, verse 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Like Pharaoh's decree of death on Israel's firstborn sons. Like Assyria's massacre, of the northern kingdom of Israel. Like Babylon's invasion of the southern kingdom of Israel. So also is Herod's murderous mandate to all the newborn sons of Bethlehem. The enemy uses the darkness of murder in an attempt to overtake the light. I've read the story uh, countless times, as have you. And, uh, but my recent study of uh, this passage brought forth a question that I think will linger with me for some time. Hundreds and probably thousands of newborn Jewish sons were slaughtered by Herod's decree. Undoubtedly, many parents whose sons were slain that night were faithful Jews faithfully looking for the coming Messiah, the coming Redeemer of Israel. And surely most of them did not receive word of Herod's decree until the Roman soldiers were upon them. But in time, each of them would hear why Herod had made the decree to kill all the newborn sons in and around Bethlehem. They would hear that it was rumored that it was because Christ, the Messiah, had been born. And my question is, 
What must the Jewish parents of Bethlehem have felt about the Messiah? The Messiah they had waited for. If His birth had brought forth their son's death. Did their hope turn to anger? Did their trust turn to cynicism? How would I have reacted if my son had died as a direct consequence of my Lord's coming? Here again, let it be very clear. The enemy uses the darkness of murder in an attempt to overtake the light. A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew quotes here from Jeremiah 31.15. And in that passage in Jeremiah, some 600 years prior to the coming of Christ, Jeremiah speaks of the invasion of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Having entered into Jerusalem, slaughtered Israel's sons, and taken the rest captive to Babylon. Jeremiah speaks of a weeping woman, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, from whom came the twelve tribes of Israel. Now Rachel had long since passed at the time of Jeremiah's writings, but she had been memorialized in a town just north of Jerusalem, Ramah. And being one of the significant matriarchs of Israel, Jeremiah aptly chooses her to be the one who mourns the murder of her sons at the hands of Babylon. Rachel wept 600 years prior to the time of Christ. And now Matthew says she weeps again in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It may have been supposed in Bethlehem that if the coming of the Messiah brought forth this much grief and this much pain, why bother hoping in Him? Had not evil already overtaken any good that could come of the Redeemer? But John 1.5 And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overtake it. The Messiah's birth was the death knell of many newborn sons in Israel. But His death and resurrection secured the life of all who would believe in Him. Friends, that is the hope. That the Messiah's birth, though it brought the death knell, the sentence of death, upon Bethlehem's children, though it brought them immediate grief and pain, the hope was that the Messiah's death and resurrection would secure the life, the eternal life, of all who would believe in Him for it. Next slide. It's not coming up. I apologize. 
In Him was life. In Jesus Christ was life. And the life was the light of men. Because of the eternal life embodied in Jesus Christ, the loss of physical life need not be a time of perpetual grief and mourning. Because of eternal life offered through Jesus Christ, all physical travails pale in comparison. Because of the eternal life given to us by faith in Jesus Christ, nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. Why did the enemy wish to prevent Advent? Why did he seek to destroy Messiah's lineage? Why did he wish to devour the child at birth? Why did he unleash the powers of darkness upon the newborn sons of Bethlehem? Because his mission was to overtake the light. His mission was to darken. And it is to darken. And to overtake, overwhelm the greatest truth of God, the message of eternal life in Jesus Christ. But the good news is that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overtake it. Despite the adversary's greatest efforts, he failed to stop the coming King. He failed to prevent Advent. And when we look back, when we look back on the foiled murderous plots from the beginning with Cain and Abel, to the time of the birth of the Messiah, when we look back and see the numerous, foiled, murderous plots, we can say with confidence, the coming of Jesus Christ was inevitable. It was unstoppable. It overcame the greatest of odds. As we enter this season of Advent, May we consider the inevitability of Christ's coming. Nothing could stop it, and nothing could overtake the message of life that He brought to all who would believe in Him for it. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not and will not overtake it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, We see in Your Word countless attempts to stop You. We see in Your Word countless vain attempts to thwart Your purposes in sending Jesus Christ our Savior. But Lord, Your Word tells us that the light, the light of Your Son, the light of His revelation shines forth in the darkness. And the darkness did not, has not, and will not overtake it. Father, remind us this Advent season that Your Son's coming was unstoppable. You are all-powerful. And nothing can overtake you or overtake your son. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.